Shalom, shalom, friends. That nigun is from the end of Birkat Amazon, from the end of benching, the end of the grace after meals that many sing. Nar hayiti gam zakanti velo ra'iti tzadik ne'ezav bezara mavakish lachem. Adonai ozle amoyiti and Adonai yivarechet amova shalom. And it's a complicated line. It says, I was young and now I have aged and I have not seen a righteous person forsaken with their children begging for bread. God will give might to God's people. Hashem will bless God's people with peace. So it's aspirational that, that the righteous should not suffer. And it's not only aspirational, it's a charge to us to make sure. Um, of course, we don't want any people to suffer or at least uh, the um, uh, the decent, um, but most certainly not the not the righteous. And so I'm thinking about that this morning as we um, are learning about kindness together and about how each day we can share our bread. We can share our bread. And our topic today of Shituf Pe'ula, of sharing class number 24 in kindness, thinking not only intellectually about these issues, but um, affectively and behaviorally, how we can infuse these into our personal life uh, patterns, routines, and into our collective ways of being as well. And so let's start with a poll question here on the issue of sharing. Option number one, we don't have to share. What we worked hard for is ours. Option number two, Sharing is important, but is so difficult for me, like all others. Option three, sharing is my life priority and is the pathway toward our collective redemption. <laughs> okay, friends, what would you um, what would you vote for here? As always, it is uh, um, anonymous. Okay, let's see our results from the vote. Okay, nobody said we don't have to share what we worked for hard as ours. That may be someone's uh, political worldview, but maybe not their personal practice. 17% um, said sharing is important, but is so difficult for me like all others. And 83% said, wow, surprised by this. Sharing is my life priority and is the pathway towards our collective redemption. Amazing, wow. Okay, friends, here we go. This is um, a presentation on the shorter side, um, on the shorter side to leave a little bit more space for conversation about this loaded topic. <clears throat> so in my home, in my home, we recently bought a new blanket 
Now, um, um, we don't buy so many new things in our home. We tend to keep the things we have. So this new blanket was kind of exciting in the home. And all the kids flock to this new blanket and wrap themselves up in it together. Quickly, as you can imagine, this issue with the blanket became difficult and divisive. We had a conversation about the importance of sharing, and we discussed different ways of sharing. Perhaps we could all share the blanket all at once, wrapping ourselves with just a little bit of the blanket on us. Perhaps we could take turns with the blanket, making sure everyone had a five-minute turn with the blanket, only to cry at the end of their turn. It's also difficult to share when something is new and exciting and when everyone feels some level of entitlement, why the blanket should be theirs. This one said the blanket on his bed was four years old. This one said the blanket was their favorite color. Who should have the rights to this new blanket <laughs> and who should go first? But the truth, friends, is that sharing doesn't get so much easier as we get older. There are family breakups, lawsuits, even wars over issues of sharing. The distribution of resources can be incredibly emotional and even contentious. Think about end-of-life debates around the will. The, the parent left jewelry. The parent has a home. Which child should get these things? So what should be our basis for distributive justice? How would a good family or a good society distribute goods in a way that is fair to all? Rabbi Jonathan Sachs writes in his book, The Power of Ideas, the voluntary sector differs from the state and the market in one vital respect. The state is about production and distribution of power. The market is about the production and distribution of wealth. But power and wealth are at any given moment zero-sum games. If I have total power and then I share it with nine others, I am left with only a tenth of what I had. If I had a thousand pounds and then share it with nine others, again, I have only a tenth of, what, of the amount of which I began with. Politics and economics are about competition. They are arenas of mediated conflict, but there are other goods among them, love, friendship, trust, which are different. The more I share them, the more I have. Indeed, they only exist in virtue of being shared. That is why communities, neighborhood groups, and volunteer organizations are vital to the health of society. They are not arenas of conflict, but rather the seedbeds of cooperation. For Sachs, it seems we will never figure out a perfect plan as it pertains to the distribution of goods and resources. Politics and the marketplace will always be competitive, divisive, and perhaps unfair. We cannot have a monarchy or communism or totalitarian control. If the masses are free, then there will be some order of chaos, even with different degrees of regulation. He argues that the arena for sharing is not in the marketplace or in politics, but in communities, not on competition, but on cooperation, and that the goods are not money, but virtues. We can share virtues like love, friendship, and trust with one another 
in intimate, safe spaces of communities. But beyond that, beyond that worldview, how are we to understand the rabbinic view of sharing? The Talmudic rabbis taught <clears throat> there are four types of people. This is from Pirkei Avot. One who says, mine is mine and yours is yours. This is the average type. And some say this typifies Sodom, right? Sodom. Then there's one who says, mine is yours and yours is mine. This is an Amharetz, an ignoramus. <laughs> then there's one who says, mine is yours and yours is yours. This is a pious person. And then there is one who says, mine is mine and yours is mine. And this is a wicked person. Okay, some of us may have seen this text a, a thousand times. Some of us, it may feel like our first time or be our first time. So let me just unpack it again so that it's clear. Mine is mine and yours is yours, right? Okay, well, let's just call it the basis of capitalism or of, of kind of Western societies we think of it. I worked for my stuff, you work for your stuff, your stuff is yours, mine and yours. Okay, that's an average person. That's how the common person thinks, right? And then, so, but then the rabbis say another view is this is actually Sodom. This is a, the most wicked society you can imagine. That's the first worldview. The second view is mine is yours and yours is yours and yours is mine, right? That person is just confused, they said. What do you mean? Mine is yours. Well, that sounds nice, but yours is mine, right? We're just kind of exchanging everything. That's just a person who doesn't understand rules, doesn't understand values. The third worldview, mine is yours and yours is yours. This is a pious person. Nothing is mine. I don't deserve anything. Everything I have is because of my privilege anyways. Really, my life is about giving. And the fourth person, mine is mine and your stuff is mine. This is the person who has total entitlement right? Everything that's mine, of course, that's mine, but I deserve more than what I have, right? I, everyone should be taxed more and give that to me. Everyone should give me their stuff. I deserve more, right? That's a wicked person, right? It's all about themselves. So when it comes to property law, as we know it today, we witness too much of mine is mine and yours is yours. It seems almost laughably obvious. According to some rabbis, as we mentioned, this is indeed normal or average, but according to the second view, this is Sodom. This is the worst place on earth that is worthy of being destroyed. The rabbis teach that Sodom was destroyed because it was a place that hated and criminalized sharing. Here's what it says over here in Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer, a great midrash. They issued a proclamation in Sodom saying, everyone who strengthens the hand of the poor and the needy and the gare, the stranger, with a loaf of bread shall be burnt by fire. I just saw in the Arizona Republic this morning that the 88-year-old woman, she may have been 78, but I think she was 88. An 88-year-old woman in Arizona, a suburb of Phoenix, um, was, uh, was charged, was arrested for serving the homeless without a permit. And she is pressing charges against the state or against the city she lives in, actually. Um, there was also a case of a, a retired pastor in Florida a few years ago um, who was like 90 years old who was arrested for serving the homeless without a permit. Um, and, um, and so too in Sodom, this idea that, um, that sharing with um, the most uh, needy itself was criminalized. Now, I want to be clear, that's different than what we're talking about. People should have a permit to serve others. We shouldn't criminalize that. 
but this, but there is, uh, I, I do understand the need to regulate um, how, how um, food is distributed in society. Um, although there's a lot of problems in that system as well. That's a, that's a separate conversation. Just distinguishing between those two points, even though there's a commonality. So it's fascinating and instructive to note that Avraham, the first Jew, who himself prayed for the salvation of Sodom, right? The most evil society. And the first Jew prayed that they be saved despite its inhabitants' corruption. He was an exemplar of the opposite approach of mine is yours and yours is yours. Avraham demonstrates this when three malachim, three messengers or angels, if you will, suddenly appear at his doorstep. He runs to greet them and bows, has water brought to them to rinse their feet, gives them to rest under the shade of a tree, and together with his wife's wife, Sarah, prepares for them an elaborate meal. He engages in five acts of kindness towards strangers, culminating in sharing, in giving generously. Right? We were all moved by um, what was the city in Texas where the most recent, the most recent, one of the most recent uh, synagogue attacks took place. Someone remind me the name of that town in Texas that was on our lips. Okay. We all know the name. And someone will share recently soon in the chat. Uh, no, not, not, no, not, no, no, that's not the one. That's the no, one. Oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't. That's the school shooting. I'm talking about the synagogue attack. Um, it'll come to me in a moment. In any case, um, Rabbi Charlie over there, um, who few of us knew before that and all of us knew after, as we remember from the headlines, what did he do? A stranger showed up at the door of a synagogue and he welcomed him tea. for tea. That was yeah. a terrorist but he didn't know that. And we want to beat Colleyville. Thank you, Aglaia. Uh, Colleyville, Texas. And that is, um, we both want security at our Jewish institutions because our attendees deserve that. They deserve security from um, these types of hate against Jews. And we want to be the kind of synagogues that welcome in strangers in with tea, even when we don't know them, right? And so that's a hard thing. And Avraham in a dangerous world sees three men he doesn't know approach and runs to serve them, runs to share with them, right? How do we, um, and this is part of why he is the first Jew because of this ethos. Furthermore, friends, a common misunderstanding is that Avraham was chosen by God as the first Jew because he was the first monotheist, right? Theology is complicated, but the Torah itself informs us that he was chosen to be our founding father for an entirely different reason. It says over there in Genesis 18, for I know of him that he will instill in his children and household after him to keep the ways of God and engage in acts of tzedakah and mishpat, right? Kindness and justice. That is why there needs to be a Jewish people, right? In order that we can keep those alive. That is not to say that other people don't keep those virtues alive as well, but that that is our raison d'etre. Avraham inherently understood that to give is to fulfill what God's, God asks of us. God didn't create the world for each person to own whatever they wish as long as they earned it themselves. Rather, God created a world of love, and we are to emulate and express that love by seeing our purpose in giving to others. So what do we own what do we own ultimately? Theologically, God is the owner of all. Of course, as far as modern law goes, we should under, understand and obey property laws, 
We can't steal people's things because God, God is the ultimate owner. But there's a clearly a deeper truth here. The Torah teaches the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are foreigners and temporary dwellers with me. Who is the foreigner? Not the undocumented person. Who is the foreigner? Not the refugee. Who is the foreigner? Not the one who um, speaks uh, a native tongue. Every human being is a foreigner on God's land. We also learn, for we are like foreigners before you and like temporary dwellers as we are all, as were all of our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow and there is no hope. Why are we also foreigners? Not only because the land is God's, but because we are mortal. Because we are going to die in a minute or in a day or in a year or in a decade, we are visiting this earth also briefly. And yes, as Eileen says, that makes us as well, not only foreigners, but also stewards. Here's a really cool um, Talmudic passage that will lead us into Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett, he should live and be well. Oh, the, the second um, greatest uh, stock uh, advisor after Steve Shobin. Um, and it says over here in a Talmudic passage it, th that relates to a story of a king who decide, decided that sharing was his spiritual priority. It says over here in Bava Batra, a story concerning King Moonbaz. Now, King Moonbaz decided to give away all the wealth of his kingdom. His brothers sent him a message stating, your father spent so much time acquiring wealth and expending the treasury which they had inherited from their predecessors. What gives you the right to spend it all, right? You inherited this wealth from your um, predecessors, from your family. You're going to donate it away? Who gives you the right to give away our kingdom? Moonbaz replied, I am stockpiling wealth in heaven while my predecessors only stockpiled wealth on this earth. I am stockpiling wealth where no one can access it, while my predecessors stockpiled wealth where anyone can take it away. My predecessors stockpiled treasures of money while I am stockpiling treasures of souls. I am stockpiling wealth for myself and for the next world, while my predecessors stockpiled wealth for others and in this world. So it may seem selfish because he's saying, this is about my soul. He understands that the money I die with dies with me to some degree. Unless, of course, we have uh, joined a life and legacy policy where we have, you know, designated our funds to go to wonderful causes, anything that's left for us, and some percentage for people we love that's left over. Um, but he understands that while our money dies with us, the money we've given away is eternally attached to our souls, right? That the money I die with is gone. But the money that I've given away before I've died or, or that is given with my death, right, is, is, um, is deeply connected eternally to my soul. So consider today also how some billionaires have taken the billionaire's pledge. Warren Buffett explains, he, he's explained it even better, but this is 12 years ago in an article in CNN. He says, the reaction of my family and me to our extraordinary good fortune is not guilt, but rather gratitude. Were we to use more than 1% of my claim checks on ourselves, neither our happiness nor our well-being would be enhanced. In contrast, that remaining 99% can have a huge effect. 
on the health and welfare of others. That reality sets an obvious course for me and my family. Keep all we can conceivably need and distribute the rest to society for its needs. My pledge starts us down that course. So some people might think they need to live on half a million a year or a million a year or 200,000 a year or whatever number they've designated. But it turns out from many studies as we have seen ourselves that moving from extreme poverty to lower poverty and does make a, a deep difference in happiness. Moving from earning 16,000 to $32,000 a year, perhaps even moving from $30,000 a year to living off 50,000 a year, if one has a family, makes a big difference in one's happiness, right? But once you get back beyond the basic need threshold, it turns out that increased wealth or increased income does very, very little to nothing to increase one's level of happiness. And so as Gates is say, Gates, as Buffett is saying over here, <laughs> um, I'd say Freudian slip, but I don't think that's actually a Freudian slip. That's just a slip. <laughs> that's just a slip. So um, moving from living off 1% um, of, of to 2% would do nothing to increase his or his family's happiness. And so he made that pledge as many other billionaires have. And one doesn't need to be a billionaire to make such a pledge, of course. And so sharing is one of the greatest challenges of our lives, whether one is a billionaire or living in poverty. Most of us feel an entitlement to what we have and more. We reason that we deserve what we have regardless of how we earned it. And we deserve even, even more. We need a spiritual revolution to awaken a deeper spirit of kindness that will enable us to both feel worthy of what we have, but also feel a sense of sufficiency and humility so that we can continue to see sharing not as a loss, but as a gain. We recite in the Ashray prayer from Tehillim, from Psalms, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living being. We can and must emulate God who decided to share life with all creatures and then to continue and supply others with the needs, their needs and desires. In fact, Ecclesiastes describes one who takes the alternative miserly approach as a fool, not just a wicked person, but as a fool. The fool folds their hands together and eats their own flesh. It's almost like they're killing themselves. They're dying in the process of greed, right? It's almost like, um, um, it's almost like imagine a, um, a, 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 an extremely ob obese person, but I don't, I don't want to stigmatize uh, obesity. So let, let, me, let me not use that example. Uh, so take out the obesity. Um, imagine just a person who's alone, who just like has in their hands like cakes and chips and sodas and like are just like throwing it down their throat, like in a way that is, um, is kind of like, you know, giving them cardiac disease. Now imagine that in the sense of like, just someone like, hoarding their wealth in a sense that was giving them a form of spiritual cardiac disease, a sense of like, just like that it's actually kind of killing us in a sense. We would do well to remember how interconnected we are. And here's, this is the last Torah I'll share here. The Ramak, Rabbi Moshe Cordovero taught, all souls are united and each soul contains a part of all others, right? We don't have our own soul. Our, the sparks of our souls are ultimately interconnected. And this concept explained more fully and eloquently by, by Rav Cordovero's disciple, Rabbi Eliyahu de Vidas, where he writes, even though your body's material substance separates you from your friend, 
The soul of both you, both of you, is a spiritual entity. And the tendency of the spirit is to make you cleave to your friend with unbroken unity. When your soul becomes aroused to love a friend, your friend's soul will be equally aroused to love you in return until both of your souls are bound to form one single entity. Let us recommit to sharing what we have. Let us follow the lead taken by our founding father, Abraham, founding mother, Sarah. Doing so not only allows us to demonstrate to others what we care about them, that we care about them, but also goes a long way towards realizing our aspiration that we are truly one. Okay, dear friends, I would love to hear from you on this topic of sharing. Hi, Eileen. Hi, Shmuley. Okay. I took notes because I have a couple of comments. Great. The first part with the quiz on the four different personalities, um, I really think that didn't adequately describe how most people work. And so my comment is boundaries. We need to have boundaries. We need to establish that. Once we do, we are then able to extend our hand. But we have to have our own boundaries first. Um, second, giving. There's been a ton of research on the benefits of giving. And the benefits of giving provide the giver with a longer, healthier life. So not only do you want to do it to help somebody, you want to do it for the benefit you get, which um, a lot of people and Buffett and Gates who have pledged to give their money away probably realize that their billions and billions have not made their lives happier. It's the giving away of those billions which enhance. And then um, teaching our children the importance of giving. My grandchildren and I have a discussion every quarter. I set up a little trust for them and we decide what organizations they will give their money to. So it's been Humane Society, it's been Alley Cat Cats, it's um, my grandson wants trees in Israel and the girls keep on saying, save the children. So every quarter we donate based upon what they want. Awesome, Eileen, I love all of your points. And I'm not gonna comment on your last two, I'll leave that to others, but I just wanna reaffirm how they resonate for me, both in terms of teaching the next generation to give, because the statistics, the statistics on giving of the next generation are pretty abysmal um, right now. And that's not to say that older generations are doing it all perfect, but that younger generations um, are, are have some scary trends. And, and at a program I was at two weeks ago, they said, um, they basically said, 
um, if if you didn't if nonprofits don't have major major endowments uh, from the from the current kind of senior generation established, then in ten years they can basically expect to fold because the the ways of giving are going to be are going to be so different. So teaching kids, teaching next generation, just want to stress how important that is. And I also love your point around happiness. Um, I think a lot of people think of happiness as like you know laying on a beach with a daiquiri. Not to put down that form of pleasure or or relaxation. It's great to be on a beach with a daiquiri. But I think um, when we think about a deeper sense of fulfillment in life, of happiness, and what we build our life around, I, I've also seen many studies like the ones um, that that you related to in terms of how 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 deep that um, impacts one's life. I the one that I do want to comment on is your first one, and because I think it's re- so important what you said, Eileen, around boundaries, that um, giving can be that much more powerful when we have boundaries. Um, and that on so many levels. And I think the Torah is coming consistently to share those boundaries. Um, and for example, the boundaries of body. My body is mine. You may not touch me in ways I don't want, right? And the to- And some people might not like the orthodox approach, but the orthodox approach around not touching, around not touching people, um, has some merit. Now it might go to its extreme, um, but you know there is merit to like uh, honoring boundaries as a social norm around privacy and body. It has to do with property, the boundaries of property laws around like, you may not trespass on my property. You may not take my stuff. It has to do with borders, right? The border, border laws of like, you may not enter my country without the country like giving you access to enter. Um, these boundaries are so important for respect. And when boundaries are honored, it can potentially open up whole new channels of giving. Um, I think what we see today in a broken left-right divide politically is a right that has puts up boundaries very, very high. They want higher fences on borders, higher walls. They want um, higher borders on um on uh, personal property, on trespassing, on po- on policing, on um, less taxation and regulations, right? Um, higher um, uh, on, on a whole number of levels. And I think um, what partially scares the right about the left is a sense that the left doesn't have any boundaries at all, that the left maybe doesn't want any borders at all, that the left has very different sense of property and policing. Right. And, and I think the sense that, wait a minute, what are your boundaries scares the right. And so I think part of the conversation to heal the divides between the left and the right could be around like, huh, like we should all agree that boundaries are necessary in life. Right. And in society. And how do we just how do we talk about reasonable boundaries that honor the respect of all parties? So thank you for sharing that. And the Torah is very pro boundaries. In fact, there's a, there's a prohibition in the Torah called, Torah called Hasagat Gavul, which means changing boundaries, moving boundary markers is a prohibition in the Torah, that boundaries have to be honored. So thank you, Eileen, for that. Hi, Aglaia. Okay, y'all, I'm really sorry. I'm not feeling particularly well today. And um, talking about the next generation, um, apologies to anyone who is a Generation Z in this room, but I'm pretty pissed at mine right now. They, they, it's finally happened. So anyway, but long story short, though, talking about, well, one, dealing with the next generation and sharing and everything like that. uh, Good luck. A lot of good luck to you for that one. But 
because they don't listen to me. But also another thing that is that I was just um getting on like, okay, the reason why I was thinking that way was because of um, sharing isn't always about like financial, you know, financial issues. So for me, in your quiz, I put that, well, sharing was my life work because well, I sharing knowledge was is my life's work. However, though, I'm kind of wondering though, if we are talking about the four types though, um, mine is mine, yours is yours, you know, if that applies to knowledge, then I can't do that. I can't say mine is yours and yours is mine. I can't say, I can say mine is yours and yours is yours. Um, I can do that though, or I can say mine is mine and yours is mine. Um, either way, because then I could be, in the last way, I'd be trying to force certain political opinions on people or whatever, and I'm not doing it. So anyway, but long story short, though, that's what kind of um, is occurring to me about this when it comes to sharing about other ways. And well, when it comes to younger generations, um, good luck getting them to listen to you because um, they're not listening to me at all. That's why I'm kind of pissed in mine right now. So great, Again, great. apologies to younger people in the room. So Thanks, Aglaia. And then I see Gary. I, I think Gary raised the hand. Yeah, we'll go to Gary. Yeah, we'll go to Gary next. Um, thank you so much. And so, yeah, I love that. And that it's, it's always easy to move the sharing conversation immediately into economics mm -hmm. and into philanthropy and into wills and estates and the like. And that those are really important conversations. But sharing space, sharing knowledge, as Sachs touched on, sharing virtues. Um, there are so many different um, forms of sharing. And... Um, and sharing stories, sharing our narrative. We share our lives together. Yes, there's a story of me, but there's a story of we. And, and for many, it's very hard to be in a family or in a people or in a nation because we have to merge our story. We have to share a story to some degree. And um, that requires humility also. So thank you, Aglaia. And um, I, I'm not gonna comment on your second point, but I'll leave that for others. Hi, Gary. Hello, hello. Can you hear me? Yes, great. Okay. Uh, I, I think sharing is something that has to be taught. And I think uh, from the get-go when we're born, you know, it's all about me. And I mean, once I heard a, a story, uh, to prove the point is to take two, two uh, kids and throw a, uh, in a playpen and throw a doll or a toy in there and, and see how the first response is, is, it's mine. And they fight over it. Uh, and I think that uh, sharing has to be taught. And I think that some of the uh, blame has to be on our generation or maybe the little generation uh, below uh, because we were so concerned about our children having good self-esteem that we taught them everything Everything is about them. Uh, it's not part of the world. We're, we're worried about, you know, uh, that everybody feels good. Uh, even though you fail an exam, you, you get a happy face. Uh, rather than say, no, you're wrong, and uh, uh, let's concentrate that you are part of the world, and the world does not rotate around you. So I think we, you know, my generation, I, I've done a real, I think we've done very well with our children, they understood that, but the majority of the world, I don't think, has taken that responsibility to teach uh, those values of sharing uh, with their children, and so I, I agree with Angela Anglia, excuse me, about uh, Gen Z. Well, yeah, it's, it's, okay. <laughs> it's okay, it's okay. It's uh, I, 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 I agree with her 100%, but we, I think we have to look at generation prior to that and did their parents, did their, our society teach them uh, uh, about sharing? 
Beautiful, Gary. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. And you're absolutely right that the that the teaching and the modeling is the most important thing we can do in that regard. And um, I love I love those points. Just before we get to Sarah and Rabbi Lerner, um, I, I want to share uh, you know, building off that uh, on your point of kind of throwing up the toys or whatever the example was, and the kids kind of fighting about it. That um, in addition to the amount we share, the questions also of how do we share. And who do we share with? So like the, the question of how do we share? I remember when in my work with American Jewish World Service in a village where a, a volunteer group before us thought they were doing a nice thing where they, they, they had bought a bike while they were there. And when they left the village, they left the bike. And, and they came back to visit sometime later. And, and then we actually saw it while we were there. This bike had created a, a bunch of conflict in the community. That was so nice that they shared the bike with the community, but whose was it and who had they left it for? And a whole bunch of fighting emerged around this. So we sometimes we think it's nice just to give gifts, right? But how do those gifts sometimes lead to conflict rather than kind of have a system embedded in it in sharing? It's not only on the responsibility of the one shared with to kind of sort that out, but also with the sharer sometimes. Then the question of who do we share with, right? Not just share in general, and here's one of the classical cases from Eunice, you know, the political economist. And I've shared it before, but I'll share it again. And it's very revealing of one's economic approach. This idea that they find a flute in a village and they ask, who should be the one to keep this flute? Should it be the one who made the flute? Should it be the one who can play the flute the best? Or should it be the one who will never be able to afford a flute? Right? And if I pulled you all, we'd have probably very different answers here. And the question is like, when there is stuff to share, who should get it? Our family, the most poor, the person we like the most, the person who lives closest to us. And every moral choice we make, there's an opportunity cost, right? There's the, there's the choice we didn't make. And so thank you, Gary, for that point. Uh, yes, Sarah. Hello. So Hi. when I saw we were going to talk about sharing, so many things came up and now what you've just said brought up more stuff for me of you know when we share knowledge we're imparting something we are foisting information we think we have on other people when we share in a community we are assuming that what we are offering is something that is wanted or needed that is even welcomed. And that's really different. But my first image when I thought about sharing this morning, it kind of goes to what Gary was saying, other than kids playing, is sitting at a soda counter and two straws in that float or that milkshake or whatever, or sitting at dinner with your companion and saying, why don't we share dessert? Now, what does that mean? Does that mean, oh, well, I get one bite? Does that mean we have it? What does that sharing mean? And the people who say, oh, no, I don't want to share. And then how do you respond to that other person? Is it a rejection of me as someone who is capable and wanting to create this intimate moment? Or is it that, no, I want my own and you get your own? I don't want to share. Mm. So all of this idea around sharing is so fascinating. Yeah. I and love that. I'm I love that. 
you know, by the way, although I want to affirm the value of sharing, I, when it comes to the dessert, I'm not such a good sharer, you know, sharing <laughs> dessert. Okay, fine. Maybe you can have a bite, but this is my dessert. You know what I'm mean? talking about? Uh, so, um, but, you know, you know it's, and it's actually funny because I wonder if anyone else had this. When we went to a restaurant when I was a kid, everyone got their own meal. You get this, you get that. It's your meal. Okay, maybe you offer a bite, but it's your meal. When we went to Chinese restaurants, <laughs> there was share. something that we're going to get four or five things and everyone's going to take a little from each thing. What is that about Chinese restaurants? Is that a thing or is that just my family? Right? Was that a thing? Okay. Poop anyway. platter. What is that? Poop platter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Indian, Ethiopian. There are lots of places. Yes. So, okay. Anyway, so it's interesting that I'm building on that point of cultures and on, on Sarah's wonderful point of unwanted sharing. There are many cultures, as we know, where it is very rude to say no to when something is offered. If you're, if, if, if you're, if you're, if something is being offered to share with you, most of us as Americans would just say, no, no, thank you. I'm good. Not hungry or on a diet or I ate already. All good. Don't want to come to your house. Thanks for the invite. Right. In other places, if you're offered something like, like it would be very rude to say, no, like you invite me to your home. I'm going to go. You invite me to eat something. It doesn't matter if I like that or it makes me want to throw up. I'm going to say yes. And I remember being in some village in India where like, they really couldn't say no. Anything. I, I couldn't even get a no answer when the answer was clearly no. Like they just wanted to say yes to everything. And so the, the, you know, there's there's this this um, issue of unwanted sharing, and all the more difficulty when it's harder to say no, um, or when one is going to be offended. So yeah, I, I so I love how Sarah's prob problematizing for us, which is not a real word. I just love to use it. Problematizing, um, you know, uh, this issue of of sharing as always good when it could, as we just said, God. could be shared with the wrong person could be shared in the wrong way, could be kind of uh, enforced, you know, could be sharing only one bite of the dessert when the person wants five bites of dessert. So I, <laughs> I appreciate that. Okay, Rabbi Lerner, over to you. Okay, uh, Sarah reminded me, and you just did, of, of a second point. So I'll start with number two and go back to number one. Uh, I don't like sharing desserts either, <laughs> or almost anything, because I'm a bacteria germ person. And that came from being pre-med. Uh, you know, I just don't want other people putting their fork or spoon in my food. I think there's also some Jewish law on this, too. The, <laughs> fact of the, ma I, I, the fact of the matter, unfortunately, is if you say, let's share, I'll tell you what, we'll get a plate and we'll get a knife and I'll cut, but you can choose first. Or you can cut and I'll choose first. Makes a difference. But we're not going to eat from the same plate. That's just my Michigas. And I'm, that's, you know, it, it, and you have to, I don't know whether it's cultural or personal, deal with it. It's yours. The, the real issue I wanted to share was that I had a, a, an incredible experience just the other day. Someone saying to me, well, how do we get more kids into a Hebrew high school program. And I said, well, not the way you're doing it. <laughs> it's, there are too many problems and there's too much money involved. Well, you have to have money if you're going to have a, a school. I said, no, you don't. I said, let me offer you another approach. I'm a retired rabbi with 50 years or more teaching experience where my students still talk to me. 
So I must not have been the ogre. And I'm willing to donate two hours, three times a week to teach for free. Well, she said, I don't want to do with that. And I said, I know. Do you know how many people are retired in our community here in Philadelphia who are competent, professionals, experienced, and engaging teachers? Whether it's Judaism or, I don't know, art history, whatever you want. We're not being used. Because everything is down to the holy book. Now, in all fairness, and I'm going to throw this in as the, on the other hand, if I teach for free, I'm taking a job away from somebody who really needs it and is equally qualified and needs the money. Great, great. Thank I'll you for you... those. Thank you for those excellent points. I'm not going to comment on most of it, but uh, but uh, just before we go to Cheryl, um, I, I but I do love that point around sharing time. And actually, many people have a lot to share, and they're not called upon. And we often think about things purely through a business model, like you're saying, and not through leveraging talent and gifts that pe that many people around us have. And um, wow, there's a lot to say about that. Um, so thank you, thank you for that. And um, and you know, there's another form of sharing that something you said kind of triggered for me, which is. As you know, there's an Israeli election today. Um, it's like the it's like the fifty it's like the fiftieth one in five years, and um, and it's interesting because they kind of share the coalitions in the, a parliament you know the system. They they share the government. Right? We're not so good about at that in the U.S. It's like you know you win or you lose. Like <laughs> you know you know you're the president or you're not. Like you have to learn how to share your country and government in a sense. I'm not calling it a perfect model. But it's interesting to think about like sharing in that regard as well of having to kind of share, um, share a culture, share power. And, um, and anyways, Rabbi, your, your point there around, um, around the sharing of time is really wonderful. Hi, Cheryl. Hello. Um, it brings me to um, a point about sharing when you were talking about restaurant sharing and all of that. It seems to me that we've come, so I, I don't know if it's a, um, if it's our age, my age, I shouldn't lump everybody together, but it's if it's my age or things have just changed, but um, we used to go to restaurants and split the bill. If you're with other people, you would split the bill and, you know, Listen, somebody might have ordered more, somebody might have ordered less, but you figure it all comes out in the wash. Now I find that I'm when I'm with a group of my girlfriends, we all get separate checks. I mean, it's like there's no more sharing involved. You know, it's not that you wouldn't say, well, here, have some of mine or some. And I just wonder if it's a um, product of getting older or if that is just an issue just for now um why things have changed maybe people are counting their their shekels a little uh tighter or or whatever and only want to pay for what they are but there's there seems to be less sharing in in that area and yes sharing chinese food is definitely a thing okay. and um the other thing i wanted to say was back to the very beginning of the class and that is your poll I thought you left out an option. Um, I, and I think that's why you found that 83% voted um, 
that mm-hmm. the way that they did. And that is, you know, there's there's a big jump between sharing is really, really hard. And yes, <laughs> sharing is my life's work. There's <laughs> there was there's like a middle ground there that <laughs> I, that I thought was omitted from the yeah, poll. You're right. So you're right. That's great point. Say. Great point, as always. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, and wonderful point about that cultural phenomenon of, um, around around bill sharing. I'm curious to hear if other people have cultural phenomena to share around sharing issues. Just before we get to Aglaia, I want to hear uh, Steve over there. Um, Steve, if you want to jump in. Thank you, Cheryl. Oh, yes. uh, thank you very, very much. Um, I, I hope I'm not problematizing uh, this <laughs> presentation by bringing it down a notch. And let me warn everybody, I'm about to say the most inane dad joke ever in the history of the world. But sharing is beshared. It is meant to be, and that's why we do it innately. It is inevitable. And I think that there are, as many people have said, many ways of sharing. I tell my kids, I always talk about sharing with my kids, and the response is we haven't generated the financial ability to share like you. And I say you can share very easily just by smiling and listening and saying somebody's name. It's really, really empowering to do all of that. But also, uh, and, and this I got from some some of the older than me folk that I volunteer for at, at Chabad, um, allowing somebody to say thank you. Uh, a friend of mine said uh, to, to a person that he had given something to, oh, no, don't thank me. Uh, I thank you for giving me the chance uh, to do a, a, a good deed. I, I said, no, no, allow that person to say thank you. Because one of the problems, uh, w- one of the needs of older than me folks is the need for routine, but also the despairing need for relevance. I find that 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 is probably the biggest missing component in older people's lives. And so to allow someone to say thank you while you might think it is greedy, it is a beautiful gift. They feel part of the equation and they feel relevant just by acknowledging uh, the deed that has been done. So beautiful, Steve, such wonderful points there. I love that. I love that. And, um, you know, and I think we might ask ourselves psychologically in areas where we don't want to share a thank you or a smile or a dollar or whatever we, we, why is it that we hold on to some things so tight? Why is it that we're closed off? We may have our own, we all have our own stories and our own um, coping mechanisms and defense mechanisms, you know, um, but we can ask ourselves around when I, when I do share whatever I share space or time or money, right? Do I feel like I've gained or lost? Right. And, and why is that? And we can kind of dive into that a little bit and to kind of bridge what Steve was sharing over there with something Gary shared earlier around kids is that, and, and we've heard this before, that babies are born with their fists clenched, right? But everyone dies with their hands wide open, right? Because when we're born, we don't quite know yet that like we need anybody. But when we die, like it's like we, we totally know how, how dependent, interdependent we are. And, and it's, a learning, it's a learning process. It's a learning process to kind of figure, to kind of figure that out. Um, and, you know, and if you look at the world and the polarities, we had like communism, which was going to be like, you're not going to own stuff. And then we had a, like a radical form of capitalism, which is that like, there's not going to be like systems of sharing really. 
And we have to think like, how is Jewish wisdom going to inform a new culture of how we think about, about sharing in the world? And, um, and that's going to require some spiritual work. So um, Eddie and Alex, I know we didn't hear from either of you yet. I don't know if either of you want to share or no pressure. You just give us space before we circle back to anyone. Okay, great. So um, great. So Aglaia, I see your hands up over there. Okay, so I wasn't sure if I wanted to share anything about this earlier, though, but um, you know what, fair game at this point, though, but because we're talking about interdependence, and that's where I kind of had a little bit of a difficult issue at one point in time, talking about being a teacher and everything. So the absolute hardest day I ever had as a teacher, though, was um, when I had planned um, a discussion for an African-American history class on Confederate monuments, and well, sort of kind of the weekend before there had been a shooting at a synagogue and I was, I just was not. And I had the whole lesson planned and everything though. The morning I walked in, I was like, I am not going to be able to get through this emotionally. This is just going to be too much and everything though. But I eventually, well, I was shaking through the entire lecture, the entire discussion. I Everyone could see that I was emotional and everything else like that. It was pretty ridiculous and it was pretty humiliating, especially since I was dumb enough to bring in, oh yeah, John Dunn and the bell tolls for thee. And oh, by the way, yeah, was it connected? Is this the same kind of thing that's happened in South Carolina with Dylan Roof? And, you know, that same stuff happening different day and everything. But I kind of thought about that. I took that from the point of view of, you know, we're all talking right now about being the giver. Sometimes you're forced to be the receiver, whether you wanted to or not. Now, how was I receiving that day? Well, the students didn't actually make an issue about the fact that their teacher was kind of an emotional wreck at that point. And the discussion went really well. They didn't give me too much trouble that day. And so, and also there were students who were kind of like, thanks, great job at, you know, at the end of class, we were like, great job. I know that this was hard, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. And so that's where I was kind of like, I don't know. I mean, sometimes we have to think in sharing and also in terms of, can you be a gracious receiver as well? Mm -hmm. Thank you, Aglaia. I want to see if anyone wants to respond to that. That touches a lot on what Steve shared and what Sarah shared as well as really thinking a lot about um, the receiver um, in this experience. I'm and when we think about sharing love, um, right? Are we sharing the love we want to share or, or sharing the love that the receiver wants to receive? Um, yes, Sarah. Yeah, um, I, I'm very moved by what Aglaia just said. Yeah. And it's, especially the end where you said they didn't give you a hard time about the fact that you were falling apart or almost falling apart. And I think that when we are, when we reveal ourselves, when we are genuinely human beings, we offer others an opportunity by sharing our humanity and our reality. We offer others a chance to be human. And so often we shut ourselves off and think we need to be a particular way that isn't in integrity with our own humanity. Yeah. And I'm complete. Did I make everyone get depressed all of a sudden? No, nobody here is depressed. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it's good. Eddie, I just saw you turn your video on. Do you want to share a last comment here? Yeah, definitely. I think that's something on the concept of sharing that 
my family always made clear uh, was on the absence of having something that then was abundant. Um, we in our village grew up extremely poor, so uh, we didn't have a lot of food. But no matter what happened, um, whoever showed up at our house would always have food. And my grandma would always say, you can always add more water to the pot of beans. And I hold that now today as one of the biggest examples of my, my grandmother's gift of sharing that every single person would always have enough to eat. We may not have enough riches, but at least a meal will be shared with anybody. When my grandmother passed away, um, her uh, funeral went on for five days because random people would show up and tell us how my grandmother would feed them when they were homeless and how my grandmother would help sew their clothing when it was ripped. And it's these aspects of sharing something uh, that really transcends, transcends the way that we look at each other as human beings. When we're able to give something that maybe we didn't have a lot of, but ensuring that the nutrition of, of food goes far beyond just food. It's a piece of you that you give to the world. It, it's a very Jewish quality, if I can jump in. And there's a great story that I think is funny, and I apologize, Eddie, if it, if, if it doesn't fit quite, of, of the woman who sees husband bring home yes, and she doesn't have enough. So she pulls the kids in the bedroom and says, look, when it comes time to offer food, you're going to take a small amount because you're not hungry. Got it? And if you really want it, say, no, thank you. I ate earlier. That's it. So they go through the dinner that way. And each time something is offered, no, thank you. I'm not hungry. And she comes out with a dessert and says, and those who didn't eat dinner, no dessert. <laughs> That's funny. And just a really clear answer. It's a Jewish thing. Um, my, my cousins who are American raised went to Mexico with my grandma and my grandma would keep feeding them because <laughs> she would they would never know how to say stop. They would say, I'm okay, thank you. But my grandma <laughs> didn't know what that meant. She just heard, okay, thank you. So she would just keep feeding them. They had a wonderful class, Rabbi Smith. Very nice, very nice. Um, yeah, and, and, and I hope everyone enjoyed sharing candy last night. I'm normally the party pooper ideology of Halloween. I'm like, I want our kids to have Purim. You go to people's doors to give them stuff, not go to doors to ask for stuff. I'm the party pooper, but I loved last night. You know, kids are knocking on our door. We're sharing candy with them. You know, I, it's such a beautiful thing. You get to know your neighbors a little bit. You know, even if they've got like blood, fake blood dripping on their face and like whatever mask, you can't even tell what's going on. You know, give me stuff or I'm going to egg your house, you know, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, I, we only got like 20 trick-or-treaters. We wanted a hundred, you know? So even though I'm a party pooper on Halloween, it's also great. Like just to have kids walking around the neighborhood and sharing stuff with them. Friends next week, our kindness class is about revenge. Oh, do we take revenge? And what does it yes. have to do with kindness? What does it have to do with kindness? <laughs> no. <Have a> wonderful <laughs> yes. <laughs> Have After a wonderful the election, day. It's Hope a everything bad goes well idea. in the Israeli election. Hope everything goes well oh. in everyone's lives. Oh. Revenge and after the elections there and here. Good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And here and here. Yes. We'll see. Yes. Uh, yes. Oh, oh, is it election day we're meeting? Oh, yes. We're meeting on election day next week. So that'll be fun also. Good to hold that space together and talk about revenge if, you're, if your side doesn't win. You know, so. Okay. Have a great day.